Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Compound and Friends. I'm your host, Downtown Josh Brown. Very nice of you to join us tonight. It is uh, Tuesday night. We have a great show for you. Warren Buffett put out a letter to his fellow shareholders. Warren Buffett has a net worth of about $121 billion, and he's trying to give all of it away, 99% of it away. And so we we talk a little bit about what that's going to look like and and how that works with our own in-house trust and estates expert, Gary Polford. And Gary Polford is a financial advisor at Ritholtz Wealth. He is uh, very knowledgeable on the topic of how wealth is distributed philanthropically uh, by families who have been very successful. And your family is going to be very successful someday. I mean, look at you. You're listening to investing podcasts in your in your spare time. So obviously you are uh, driven, trying to better your situation, trying to build your wealth. So someday, and maybe that day is soon, and maybe it's decades from now, you will be in a position to give away a lot of money. And so this is a really important topic, and I hope you enjoy the discussion between Gary and I. And then my buddy, my guy, my pal, Michael Batnick, my co-host for What Are Your Thoughts?, we get into pretty much everything. We look at uh, the collapse in volatility. We look at small cap tech, which is an area we really haven't spent a lot of time on. We get into the year-end rally or the potential for a year-end rally and so much more. So stick around for that. And uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, if you like listening each week, the best way you can show us is by hitting the ratings and review sections of your favorite podcast app and tell everybody that you're down with uh, the compound. This is your show. Here's why you love it, etc. And if you do that, it really helps. Okay, guys, that's it from me. Hope you uh, enjoy the show. I'll send you there right now. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Redholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Redholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey guys, I am here with Gary Polford. Gary is a financial advisor at Ritholtz Wealth and one of our in-house trust and estates experts. Gary joins us from Orange County, California today. You're in uh, you're in Newport, right? That's right, yes. All right, love it out there. Hey, uh, thanks for doing this. I wanted to talk a little bit about Warren Buffett because this week, or I suppose last week, fairly quietly, uh, he put out a letter to his fe- fellow shareholders this is a, pre- a news release from Berkshire Hathaway uh, dated November 21st. And he does this, I think he does this every year, and he's basically just updating everyone about the state of his will and his contributions that he's making to various foundations. So let me just set this up. Uh, Warren E. Buffett converted 1,600 A shares into 2.4 million B shares in order to give these B shares to four family foundations. That's 1.5 uh, million to the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation, and then 300,000 each to the Sherwood Foundation, the Howard G. Buffett Foundation, and Novo Foundation. These donations have been delivered today. But then he goes on to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on with his children as the executors of his will and the trustees. And what were some of the things that you saw in here uh, that jumped out at you, Gary? 
Well, I think he's certainly looking uh, to get this money to work soon, sooner than later, yeah. rather than having to wait around until he's long gone. He's he he gave away close to a billion dollars last week uh, to these four foundations. Yeah, it's quite quite a lot of money. He mentions that uh, he says, "My three children are now, and this is hard for their father to believe, between sixty-five and seventy years of age. For some years, their foundations have distributed substantial sums, occasionally to the same donee." However, usually, however, the three follow different paths. Um, it sounds as though he is paying more attention than before to what his children are doing with their own distributions. Do you read it that way? Oh, definitely. Definitely. In fact, I went back and reviewed the 2006 letters that he, he sent to each of his children, and he, he gives them guidance. And that was, we're talking 17 years ago. Yeah. So he's been He's been mentoring them all this time, and so he's finally figured out that they. He finally believes that they've got the um, that they've got the knowledge and the experience to take over this process. Yeah, he says my three children are the executors of my current will, as well as the named trustees of the trust that will receive ninety nine percent of my wealth pursuant to the provisions of the will. They were not fully prepared for this awesome responsibility in 2006, but they are now. This is, I'm guessing, this is one of the all-time greatest fortunes, maybe the greatest fortunes ever to be given away. Warren Buffett is uh, on paper worth $121 billion and plans to give away all of it effectively. So putting that in the hands of his three, you know, adult children is, is a pretty big responsibility. Well, and what also was interesting about this process is we're always telling our clients they need to have a living trust, that, yeah. that, that a trust is an efficient way of, of distributing their assets. In this case, though, he's using a will, and he specifically states he's using a will so that this will be on record at the courthouse. You can run down to the courthouse in Omaha, look at his will, and see exactly what was done with his money. So there's he, he wanted to be very much full disclosure, sharing the information with the public. Uh, if you want to see where Warren Buffett's money went, you can go and read his legal documents in in the at the courthouse. Gary, he refers to this as a testamentary trust. Is that what you're saying, or or is that is that terminology mean something different? Well, testamentary trust just means it's a trust that was created by a will. Okay. So his will says put the money in a trust and let my kids manage this money for ten years or so, and then distribute all the money. Is this common? He says the three trustees, his children, must act unanimously. Because of the random nature of mortality, successors must always be designated. The trust charter will be broad. Laws in respect to philanthropy will change from time to time. And wise trustees above ground uh, are preferable to any strictures written by someone long gone. So he's saying like things are going to change. Rules are going to change. That's why it's so important that the people that are living are calling the shots and not me from beyond the grave. You reading it that way? Uh, too? Yeah, he's saying that he he trusts his kids to make the right decisions. I also like the fact that he required them to always name a successor because that's a, that's a case where you, you sometimes somebody passes away and maybe you have to go to the court to appoint another successor. Uh, he's he's mandated that they always make sure that there's somebody there for the the inevitable, which may happen at some point unexpectedly. Um, this was interesting to me. I, I was not aware of this. The testamentary trust will be self-liquidating after a decade or so and operate with a lean staff. It'll be, to the extent possible, be funded by Berkshire shares. So how does, how does that, what does that look like for, obviously in this case, but, but more broadly speaking, 
What does that look like for most wealthy people who are setting up their, their estate this way? Well, first off, we're talking about a $100 billion foundation probably. Yeah, it's a little different from, from the average wealthy person. And he realizes that they could put a staff of 100 people on there, but they don't need a staff of 100 people. He, right. he focuses on this money needs to be put to work in the next 10 years after I pass away. So he doesn't want this money to go on into perpetuity to be a dynasty because the only rules are you have to give out 5% of a foundation each year. So if you give out 5% every year, you can have that money go on for generations, but then the generations tend to lose sight of the vision of the founder, which is Warren Buffett. Okay, so it's more important for him for this to happen quickly, relatively quickly, as opposed to his great-great-great-grandchildren 100 years from now attending galas. and I mean, they'll always be, his family will always be rich, but they won't be dynastic per se, to, to your point. Exactly. And, it, and he even points out in his 2006 letters to the kids yeah. that he wants this money to be given in large chunks to a few foundations. I mean, we talk about diversifying portfolios. I mean, you can see a portfolio with a stock portfolio with 300 different stocks in the portfolio. It's not going to have a lot of impact on one stock or the other. Whereas with this foundation, he'd rather see them put the money towards 10 charities that have needs rather than 100 charities. Right. So he, he really wants them to focus their focus the efforts, focus the results of this money. When you're talking with uh, wealthy families who are facing these issues and trying to make good decisions today that, you know, both keep the family focused on what they think is their responsibility, but also allow for some creativity in the way that money is used or given away. Um, what are some of the issues that come up that maybe we're not reading about here, but that are worth getting into? I think one of the biggest things is, is, is to teach the family values to the younger generation. And in this case, Warren's been lucky enough, as he mentioned in his letter, he's had, he's, he's kind of used more than of his life than he's expected. So the fact is he's, he's had 17 years to, to, to mentor his children on this process, to share his knowledge and share his experiences. Um, so I think that the biggest thing is just, uh, it's, it's one thing to pass money on to your heirs to have them handle it. It's another to have the time and take the effort to teach them how to properly handle it. It's a really good point. And, uh, you know, he's, he's in a really lucky situation having lived as long as he has. And, uh, I think having, ha having left behind a really great example. So it's not as though his children are all of a sudden going to start becoming, amazing investors. That's not what their lives have been about. Um, but there is this money and it does need to be used wisely. Um, and so it's like, it's great that he's had that ability to spend this time with his adult children and give them that example to follow. And, and also probably in that process is, has taught other people with other foundations, much smaller, some of the some of the core thoughts about about how to run a foundation, the, the proper way to 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 put that money to work. He even mentions about um, some things in his letter talk about um, giving the money to causes rather than the people who ask for the money. Yeah, and 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 making sure you keep that money local too. You mentioned that it it stood out to you that for the first time in a while, it looks like uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is not on the recipient list. And obviously, Correct. there's there's been some headline risk there. Um, I don't think that uh, I don't think that any of us would understand the relationship between uh, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and how things are these days. But maybe like when you're doing something that's charitable, maybe the smart thing to do is just avoid 
any potential controversy if and, and where you can. You see it that way? Exactly. Plus also, too, when he when he made that initial bequest to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, again, that was 17 years ago. Things things have not only have things, maybe he's just decided it's not so much an issue of what's been going on with Bill Gates, but more so a matter of just that I, I have more trust in my kids now and I want to focus everything with my with my family rather than to an outside entity. From your experience, uh, when when in the life cycle is usually the point where uh, this conversation gets started. Is, is it usually generated by, let's say for a first generation, very wealthy family, is it usually a sale of a business or a death of a matriarch or a patriarch that sparks this? Or do you encounter wealthy families that are way ahead of, of, of schedule and talking about these issues even sooner than then? Actually, I think one of the biggest things you have to Base is you need a family that's philanthropic. I mean, there, certainly there's a, there's tax benefits to this. The the reason Warren Buffett's wealth is going into a a charitable trust is so there's no estate taxes that can be paid on that money because it's all going to go to charity over time. Yeah. But I, I think yes, yeah, certainly it is a case when somebody's got liquidity when they've sold a business they've inherited money, but it's more so they have to have a, a, a deep passion for for helping others. And that's yeah. something that uh, that not every wealthy family is going to going to take hold of. Yeah, there has to be a there has to be a a a belief system in place that they want to see the money do something other than just pay taxes when they're gone and sometimes while they're here. And that's like uh, that's got to be the underpinning of the whole thing. Other otherwise, a lot of this stuff is just not going to be relevant. Correct. Exactly. Okay. Hey, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and of course, thanks for all your expertise on behalf of our wealthy clients who are facing these issues and uh, trying to do the right thing. You do an excellent job. We appreciate it. Thanks, Gary. Thank you very much, Josh. Always enjoy. All right. Microphone check. One, two. All right, guys. Hey, we didn't know we were going to have to start with this, but a true, true investing legend passed away. I don't know, like within the hour we, we got word. And uh, we're still going to do everything that we were planning to do tonight, but wanted to make a little bit of space to talk about Charlie Munger uh, on the Mount Rushmore, I would say, of, of investor investors, legends, uh, 99 years old, he almost made it to uh, his 100th birthday, which I think would have been January 1st. So just an incredible, legendary investor. We're going we're gonna to talk about that in one moment. Um, but first, Michael, let's, uh, let's thank our sponsor of, of this week's show. Um, so the sponsor for today's show is U.S. Benchmark Series ETF. They allow you to target specific maturities specific parts of the yield curve. Uh, and check this out. Uh, they roll each ETF to the newest treasury security as it's issued. And that rolling process realizes capital losses and defers any capital gains. To learn more, uh, that's the magic of ETFs. To learn more, go to ustreasuryetf.com. That's ustreasuryetf.com. Very, very cool idea for a product. All right. Uh, so look, this is um, this was a day that everybody knew was coming. This is you know you're talking about a 99 year old person who has 
lived, has seen a century. And uh, I thought it was interesting. I was this weekend, I was actually finally, I finally got around to listening to the Acquired podcast. This might be his last interview ever. Yeah. So they had him. So let me give people a little bit of background. Charlie Munger has never been on a podcast before. He did his first podcast. Michael, I know you're friendly with Andrew Marks. It seems like Andrew Marks put the Acquired guys into Charlie's dining room um, to get this done in Los Angeles. <laughs> Pretty cool. And then you, I, you hear him in the background throwing out some questions. But uh, Charlie spent, you know, had dinner, but spent like an hour or more talking about some of the greatest uh, investments of his career, the relationship with Warren Buffett. So if you like really want to do like a deep, deep uh, Charlie Munger dive, um, that's his latest thinking on everything from China to Costco to Home Depot to what any anything. Um, so I would definitely point people there. Uh, what's the first thing that occurred to you when you heard the news? Um, I guess surprise. Well, it's hard to be surprised when a 99 year old person passes, but you know, you just heard him a couple of weeks ago, and yeah. his voice was a little bit tough, but certainly sharp as ever. Yeah. He had a lot of uh, Yogi Berra-isms. He had like a lot of really great sayings that on their surface, they were a little bit silly or paradoxical, but the more- Like people, let, people, don't, go any, people don't go there anymore, it's too crowded. Yeah, yeah, like he had a lot of those types of uh, sayings, but there was so much depth. I'll hold that up. We, so who got this for us? Somebody so, sent, the, we each have a signed copy from Charlie Munger, which is pretty dope. So it says, it says for Mike- and he signed it. Was yeah. this was this Ed Borgato? I don't know, but uh, I feel bad. I, Somebody sent that to us like a year ago. What an amazing gift! I feel bad that I can't remember who got this for us. But I was now the problem through. is he thought he was signing it to Michael Jordan. So right, I don't know right. if you're. I don't know. If I was. Upset about I was that. thumbing through this, and believe it, I've never. I've never read this. I mean, it is definitely a tome. It's a, it's a coffee table book. It's not something that you- This is uh, poor, poor Charlie's Almanac. So this is Poor Charlie's Almanac. This is the third edition. I don't know when the first one came out, but I was just thumbing through it, and the forward is written by Warren Buffett. And I won't read the whole thing, just, just the first two sentences. He said, from 1733 to 1758, Ben Franklin dispensed useful and timeless advice through Poor Richard's Almanac. Among the virtues extolled were thrift, duty, hard work, and simplicity. Subsequently, two centuries went by during which Ben's thoughts on the subjects were regarded as the last word. Then Charlie Munger stepped forth. Yeah. And it's about, it's only two short pages, but Charlie Munger <laughs> wrote yeah, a rebuttal. Say, but listen to say, this. Though, stop, stop thumbing through that, by the way, because I don't know what that's going to be worth, the book. Like, yeah, you put yeah. on a pair of gloves. So, but okay. listen, so, so, so Charlie Munger wrote a rebuttal. And again, I won't read the whole thing, just the first, uh, first couple of sentences. He said, I think there's some mythology in the idea that I've been this great enlightener of Warren. He hasn't needed much enlightenment. I frankly think I get more credit than I deserve. It is true that Warren had a touch of brain block from working under Ben Graham and making a ton of money. It's hard to switch from something that's worked so well. But if Charlie Munger had never lived, the Buffett record would still be pretty much what it is. And... What Munger is referring to is the credit that Buffett has given him for extolling the virtues of not buying a uh, fair company at a wonderful price or a decent company at a wonderful price, the cigar butt style of investing, but buying wonderful companies at a fair prices. And that was a gigantic shift from he, what he did in the early days of his partnership yeah, in the so, 1950s. Right. So 
so um, Buffett has given Charlie Munger credit for the unlock, whereby they went from Buffett went from buying I th- the cigar bud thing is a very specific thing, which was really like, okay, we know this company is already dead, but there's a couple of puffs left, like picking well, up a cigar th- off the floor. There used to be actual companies that had more cash. Like literally more cash in the company than it was worth alive. Yeah, and and so those sort of inefficiencies obviously disappeared a long time ago. But when they did, Munger said there's probably a better, an easier way to do this. Right. So he gets the credit for that. And without that insight, there's probably no American Express investment, probably no Coca Cola, definitely no Apple. Um, so Warren's strategy uh, changed from the, the hardcore Ben Graham discipline of only buying the cheapest securities to something where, okay, you're willing to pay up a little bit, but there's got to be a really great brand or, or great company underlying. And that's really the, if, if you ask me, having read maybe a lot, but not the most about the, the success of Berkshire, but I've read my share, that, um, that unlock is the one that really made the huge difference and I think separated Buffett from a lot of the other value investors of that era, of which there were many. So. We'd say that Charlie Munger is, I guess him and Warren, uh, probably him, the most quotable investor of all time. Yeah, him and him and Peter Lynch probably are the two that, like, in the in the popular parlance of traders, investors, etc. Like, you'll hear somebody say something and not even realize that that Munger said it first. I want to give people a little bit of a background. Charlie Munger. In addition to being the vice chairman, this is from uh, CNBC.com's obit, um, was a real estate attorney, and he was the chairman and publisher of the Daily Journal Corp., which is an, a newspaper. He was a member of the Costco board, and I mentioned uh, a podcast um, that he did a couple of weeks ago. He spent a lot of time talking about what made Costco so obvious and so special. Um, he was worth about $2.3 billion dollars. According to uh, according to CNBC.com at the start of this year, which we forget, it's a it's a huge amount. Buffett's worth 120, so the two are not comparable. But 2.3 billion is a pretty gigantic number, and you know, obviously, most of that is from the appreciation in Berkshire Hathaway shares. Um. As I was thumbing through this book, here's just, this is just a great example of like, who is Charlie Munger? Um, somebody asked him a question, do you use a computer? And he yeah. said, I don't. I do have one in my office, but I've never turned it on. In fact, I wouldn't even know how to plug it in. Right. In my life, there are not many questions I can't properly deal with using my $40 adding machine and dog-eared com- compound interest table. He's like the only, when you think of uh, investing wisdom, which has become sort of taken hostage and turned a little bit cheesy. He's, he's really the, the founder of all of that wisdom. Yeah, I also think he's a guy that never changed, and he gets a certain amount of uh, street cred for that. Like, this is not a guy that, like, in the 60s and 70s was saying one thing, and then when the 80s came along, started doing all these LBOs because it was fashionable. Like, he never pivoted. Um, to becoming like a tech guru or a macro. Like he really just always focused on investing in great businesses. Hated. Um, I don't he know his opinions, he, but he wasn't like changing the, uh, he wasn't changing what he was doing based on the times around him. He really stayed true to what he always said he was about, which I think is very rare. An old soul 
somewhat to someone yeah. described as cantankerous. He definitely, I don't know that he hated Wall Street, but I don't think he cared much for investment bankers. Definitely hated consultants. Yeah. Yeah. And then some of the last comments that he made about investing, people, you know, were, were asking him on a consistent basis, like, has it gotten harder? He said it was it's never easy. Yeah. And it's harder now. Like that was a great, that was a great Munger quote. Like, like it, it was never easy and it's even harder now. So he doesn't think that there are no opportunities for investors, but I think he's been very circumspect. His, his point is you cannot have trillions of dollars chasing opportunity and everybody getting a happy ending. There's just, it, the industry is bigger. The amount of hands in the pot are more, more plentiful. And, you know, it's just not going to be true that all these people who are claiming expertise are going to be able to deliver for their investors. I don't think that's an irrational comment uh, to agree with. I think it's a pretty easy comment to agree with. Um, so his, not, his, know, it's, it's, it's not popular to say that on Wall Street. His, his legacy um, will be that of the number two at Berkshire, the number two to Warren Buffett, and yeah. probably the, the greatest sidekick of all time. I would, I would, I would say so. And uh, I could only imagine what today and, and this, uh, the rest of this week will be like for Warren Buffett. This is like somebody who's been a constant in his life as much as his uh, three children. And uh, it's got to be, uh, it's, it's got to feel like almost more than the end of an era. It's like the end of a lifetime, yeah. given how long they've been working together. So our, uh, our, our hearts go out to the Munger family and all of the shareholders who had gotten to know him over the years and anyone whose life he touched, which of course is probably uh, a million people, investors, business owners, et cetera. And, uh, and Warren Buffett. So uh, that's our brief, but um, necessary encomium to one of the greatest investors of all time. We may have more to say on this later this week if we can get our act together. Okay, let's do the show. Um, I think Charlie would have wanted it. <laughs> I think Charlie would have wanted it that way. Okay, uh, year-end rally looking for, to me like a slam dunk. Of course, th- you know, anything can happen out of the blue. Um, geopolitically, but absent any kind of uh, exogenous event, I don't see why this year would be different from most years, which is a lot of active managers in a position where they have to do something more aggressive than they've been doing all year. And what that ends up looking like is a race into the fastest growing, highest flying stocks. It's, it's, It's not novel. It's not unique to 2023. Um, but that's my baseline. That's what I expect to see over the next four weeks. What about you? So what's happening? Why should yeah. this year be any different? Yeah. Now, of course, you know, who knows? Exogenous events happen all the time. But assuming no news that shocks the market, the chase is on. That's just what it is. Uh, Willie Delwich at uh, High Mount said, for the first time in 16 weeks, last week had more stocks making new highs than new lows. In bull markets of the past, Greater new highs than new lows was the rule, not the exception. This is like one of those statements that on its surface is obvious, but people like almost like drift past this. They shouldn't. This is really what it is. This is what I'm sorry. Can you, say that, can you say that one more time? For the first time in 16 weeks, last week had more stocks making new highs than new lows. So he's talking about 52 week lows versus 52 week highs. Mm. It's been negative that, that, uh, th- that, that equation until last week. 
And in my experience, it's probably not likely to be a blip. It's probably going to be a sea change. And what, why that's great is there are a lot of stocks that have not had a good year, especially Tons. when you, yeah, especially when you look at it relative to, let's say, the NASDAQ 100. So uh, that's what I think you're going to see. You know what we just had for the first time yeah. in a long time, in a relatively long time? Uh, we had a V-shaped recovery. Oh, the, Octo the October 2023 low to today. Yeah. The, the, October, the October sell-off was straight down. Yep. Effectively, we were down like nine out of 11 days and we came straight back up. And it's the first time that's happened in quite a while. I really think that my um, mutual fund tax law selling idea was the reason why it looked that way. Um, in October. I mean, it's easy to say in hindsight, but that's really what it was. I didn't think there was anything fundamental going on. Um, we got a, a benign inflation print, so that was important. And maybe we got like softer rhetoric from a couple of Fed heads. But I think the real thing that happened was people stopped doing tax law selling toward the end of October, and uh, there were no sellers left when the month turned over. If uh, you look at a chart, that's what it looks like. I mean, that is purely like fitting a narrative to what happened. This is what I do. I'm one yeah, of the best in the it. world you, at it. You, you are very good at it. Ari Wald at Oppenheimer, one of our favorite technicians, talks about um, something that I think uh, also gets overlooked or people really are not fully aware of. Technology almost always leads true bull markets. So uh, before we pop this chart, let me just give you Ari's actual word. Our feel is that bearish investors that largely missed the S&P 500 gains in 2023 are gravitating toward the Russell 2000 in belief there's greater potential in lagging benchmarks. He disagrees, but he points out if you're going to do that, you might want to do that in small cap tech. Technology has outperformed during 20 of the 23 bull cycles since 1932. This means that in a bull cycle, tech usually outperforms that's why the S&P is benefiting. It's got 27% weighted toward uh, tech. Russell 2000 has too small of a technology uh, proportion to, to keep up. Um, hey, you know but, what? Go ahead. The, are there, are there uh, any small cap sector ETFs? No. Nope. So like XLK, XLK is at an all-time high, right, right there. There's not. I looked. There, there is no explicitly Russell 2000 tech Opportunity? ETF. You could launch it. Nobody, I mean, it's going to be a collection of garbage. You know what I mean? Like sm small cap tech is super dicey. Like it's not, it's not going to be a great long-term investment strategy. Is it tradable? I think this is the environment where it is tradable. These are stocks that are involved in some of the hot themes, but they just haven't done anything. Or, um, but we're going to show you some of these names right now. Um, let's pop, let's pop, first of all, let's pop this first chart. Russell 2000 technology. So if you were going to build a Russell 2000 tech ETF, this would be the index that you're basing it on. And but on the look bottom, it. it looks like it's, it's breaking out relative to the rest of the Russell 2000. That's, or that's, that's what we're about to. That's what uh, Ari's showing, coiled and yeah. ready to spring. So Russell 2000 tech versus Russell 2000. Um, the next chart is some of Ari's favorite small cap software chart. Uh, some of Ari's favorite small cap software, individual charts. Um, I don't even know what these things are. Braze, B-R-Z-E. Uh, Couchbase, okay. It's my Freshworks, biggest And Elastic. And none of these are in uptrends. These are all basing. These are all stocks that are basing, but look like 
uh, they've cleaned up their sellers. Well, so let me ask you this. Effect. Let me Go ask ahead. you this. So assuming that the rally continues to the end of the year, chart off, please. Would you rather buy the leaders? I'm just talking for the next, whatever, 30, 30 days. Would you rather buy the leaders or the losers that stopped going down? And two of the losers that stopped going down, like, for example, like, like Target or Dollar General. Like, would you rather buy the losers or ride the winners? So, like, not to be a dick, but I'm already in the leaders. Like, like I, like I, I know, Do you I know own Uber? Mad at Do you own Uber? Yeah, it's up 100% <laughs> this year. I'm in NVIDIA. I'm in CrowdStrike. I'm in Apple. Like, what? I'm in the leaders. You know what I'm saying? Um, All right, but if you weren't, if you weren't, not to brag, if you weren't. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying, uh, yeah, because yeah, I, because here's Yeah, what? Thing. Yeah, what? Yeah, I would buy the leaders again if I wasn't, okay. or I'd buy the leaders that I don't own. There are plenty of them. I'm, I'm not in everything. Um, but I did buy, I bought uh, Zoom and PayPal, which are two of the biggest laggards of the year, of the last Zoom's, three years. Zoom is such garbage. You're going to be you so wrong right. on that. It's embarrassing. Um, I bought PayPal. You and I talked about it. Time out. I'm not, I'm not making any forward statements about Zoom. I'm saying it looks like shit. You yeah, might be right. Shit. No, it's shit, but it's 14 yeah. times earnings shit. So I think it's been de-risked. Oh, but at least it's not growing. It has that going for it. Dude, they have built, they, they, they have like billions of dollars I know their big contracts are growing. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Barely growing. Barely growing. Doesn't matter. The balance sheet is great. They have time to figure it out. They have a new CEO. The balance sheet. Have you learned nothing from Charlie Munger? You I've poor son a of a bitch. Charlie Munger. It's one of the first things I look at. All right. Uh, one, one thing that I'll say uh, in the case of PayPal Affirm and Shopify have absolutely left that stock in the dust, and they do the same thing. Jeez, They're in the Affirm buy now, pay rocking. later business. Yeah, it's sick. Affirm, there might be a really big short squeeze underway in Affirm. I haven't really looked. Um, Shopify's left orbit. Uh, PayPal's in a lot of the same businesses. Uh, and, and we could talk more about that later. Um, I wanted to show you this. I had Sean put this together. So if you're asking, like, what are the Russell 2000 tech stocks that we're even talking about? Mm. Um, here they are. These are the 10, let me explain what this is. These are the 10 highest volume in terms of daily trading in the Russell 2000, not the best or the biggest. So SoundHound, which is AI, and C3, which is also AI, no surprise. Those are trade, uh, I think this is the biggest dollar volume, not share volume. That, um, but that doesn't is, look right. You think not, it's not, to question, not to question Sean's work. $9 million, that's like $0. That could be more. That could be in billions. $9 billion Trillions? worth of stock no, changing no, hands. No, no, no. The market cap's probably not even that big. Either way. No, it doesn't. The market cap doesn't have to. The, the market cap is turning over multiple times in some of these stocks. Not a day. Per day. No. No uh, chance. We'll find out. All right. These are just the, these are the, the highest volume. Is, be is that as that it we're may. Trying to make. Go ahead. Do you, know any of these stock, do you know any of these stocks besides C3 AI? Do you know... Um, Array or backed or any of any of them for no. that matter. I used uh, I I bought AI sound power. So for example, I'm looking at Sound Soundhound. Yeah. Its volume yeah. today was it traded seven million shares today. So Soundhound is I'm not I'm not like in the stock, so I don't want anyone to take this and say Josh is pumping Sound. I don't know anything about recent fundamentals on it. I don't follow it. I know what the business is. Soundhound is like when you call a restaurant to order takeout. This is why I know this. <laughs> when you call, uh, I called Anthony's coal-fired pizza the other day. Dude, that talks. place has great wings. 
Yeah, great. That's that's what I eat. Low low carb. When you call there, you don't talk to a human. You talk to, I, it's probably Soundhound. You talk to an AI. You tell it what you want, and it asks you follow up questions like, "Do you want the sauce on the side, or do you want to give me a credit card number or pay in cash when you arrive?" Your entire interaction is with an AI voice robot, and it's. I mean, you know how I feel about this. It's way better than dealing with a regular person. What if you said, what if you, what if, what if you wanted drumsticks only? Uh, oh, no flats. Are you calling flats? Yeah. What do you call the other part? Wings? Oh, no, but no, the whole thing is a wing. The wing no, is, no, 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 no. Let me teach you something that you clearly don't know. The wing. <laughs> no, this part, that's the wing. That's the wing. That's Listen, the part that I eat. Please. No, no, no. The wing is bise- bisected. That's not an actual drumstick, that part that you think is a drumstick. It's not its leg. It's part of the wing. It's part of the wing, okay? So it's the flat and the, they cut it in half. And so that's how you get those two parts. Part of the wing. You're blowing my mind right now. You break it in half and you get a flat and you get a drum. That's the whole, that's, two of those put together is a buffalo wing. <laughs> the more you Savvy? know. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on. C3AI, I predicted that this stock would be one of the big bubbles of the year. This is, I think Tom Siebel is the founder of this, if I'm not mistaken, um, who's had another successful public company uh, eponymously named. Um, but C3AI is, let's throw it's not a It's not a bubble. It's not a great bubble. It's really not. No, it's, it's not. Um, it's this not. is a wild, so th- this is from inception though. Look at this. Next chart. No, it's the other day. That's Inception. Yeah. Yeah, not a yeah. bubble. Uh, this, has been, this has been a rock and roll stock. This uh, C3 AI is up 128% this year. Uh, excuse me, up 159% this year, which, uh, I mean, <laughs> but, but still nowhere near the 2021 highs chart off. No. It's pretty, uh, pretty impressive. Are we uh, good? I don't think it's a bubble either. I saw, I saw their earnings results. They looked pretty good. This stock could be way more expensive based on how excited people are over AI. They haven't really run it up yet. So I, I don't think I was right in that call. All right. So we got a volatility smash down. Where's the VIX at these days? Under 13? Right about we at the hit, lowest of the year? Hit, kind of incredible. 20 on October 7th. Um, That's the last VIX spike. It was, no, October 23rd. Where it says Hamas uh, attacks. That was the last, that was the last big VIX up move. Yeah. And nowhere uh, near the, the peaks from the Ukraine invasion. No. Uh, so it's not way. just like, it's not just like that the VIX is broken or it's track, or it's measuring something different than what people are trading. Like the actual volatility of the S&P is pretty low. So next chart, please. It's just the third day standard deviation, and it's on the rise a little bit. But stock, the stock market's been in terms of just mean, like what is this S and P five hundred thirty day standard deviation one percent? So that's like the average move, or the average move relative to the norm. Like that's just that's the a great average. Question. That's the, the standard, average thirty day move. So, what the standard deviation says is, if it's plus or minus one standard deviation from the mean on like a normal bell curve that 68% of all observations would occur within that time frame or that yeah. like that band. Yeah. 
That's what that means. So, so but that's looking at it on a 30-day basis. On a 30-day basis. Uh yeah. I it's it's hard to get like it's hard to get too bearish just because vol is low. Like if that's your reason, it rarely works out, but you rarely want to buy like peak uh like peak tranquility either. So, so I'm glad a, you mentioned that. It's a delicate that. balance. I'm glad you mentioned that. Like some people would, would view a low VIX as like, can't buy now, but people are complacent. Um, yeah. And I feel bad. Work, I feel I feel bad. I grabbed this chart and I I, I wish I could. Uh, I grabbed it like five minutes before the show and gosh. Oh, here it is. Here it is. I was about to say, I forgot who, who, who tweeted it. All right. It's from Todd Sohn. So Todd Sohn showed forward six and 12 month returns for the S&P when the VIX is in the second to lowest decile, meaning the VIX is low. Is that where we are now? So that's where we are right now. Okay. So he says the VIX currently sits in decile two, uh, complacency maybe, but forward equity returns are often decent from here. So this is a scatter plot showing the VIX level with the forward uh, returns for the S&P. And looking out six months, it's positive 77% of the time with an average gain of 4.5%. Looking out 12 months, it's an average uh, gain of 10.3%, positive 89% of the time. So, you know, nothing's, this is not like there's the end of the deal. There's, so there, but there's, nothing, there's nothing there, though. Like, point there's is, no reason point not is, to buy, if that's no, there No, a low VIX is, in and of itself is not a reason to be, to be bearish. I mean, the VIX have been we, – we've seen low VIX regimes for, that lasted for like years, right? Yeah. So it's funny. Like, so people are saying it's like calm, but then other people would take that and say, oh, no, actually, it's not even calm. It's all the way in the other direction. It's euphoria. So I was saying like one man's calm is another man's euphoria. So I want to share this with you from Chartstorm. The rally off both October lows, meaning the 2023 October low and the original 2022 October low, has triggered a return of euphoria reminiscent of what happened at the start of some of the most significant cyclical bull markets in recent decades. Okay, meaning, there we go. Meaning euphoria is sometimes how you kick off a bull market. And so this comes from top-down charts, and I want to give people a little bit of an explanation of what this euphoriometer is. It's I'd a love combination. To, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, jo- I'm sorry, Josh. It's a euphoria meter. Go on. I know, dude. I'm joking, um, but I, I'd love to give people like some idea of what's going into how how he's calculating this. He wasn't joking. So so it's three gauges of investor sentiment. They're using surveyed sentiment like um, bull bear, you know, whatever. They're using forward PE ratio. That's price versus next 12 month consensus earnings. Um, what's what's being expected. And then they're using the implied volatility or the VIX. Uh, so that's like whether conditions are in a panic mode or complacency. And then they're use, creating a composite based on those three things to measure how much euphoria they see in the market. But they're not saying euphoria means the same thing as top. And I think that's like a, a really big takeaway. Um, but so I don't, I don't know if I'd agree that we're seeing euphoria, maybe in the AI related stocks, some version of euphoria, but market wide, I don't think that that's how I would describe qualitatively the situation that we're in. Even it doesn't, if there's a it quantitative way to say that. It doesn't feel like euphoria. I don't, I don't feel it either. And when I talk to people, I don't hear it from anyone. Um, all right, I, I think I'm up. I want to do this thing on record corporate profits. We don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but here's a question for you. What should a company record highs in the stock market if you want to say, oh, this rally's justified, but not that we care about those things. Record um, prices in the stock market? 
Yeah. What should accompany that? Earnings. Record, pro- record earnings. Yeah. So we are back to challenging record high corporate profits. And I know we've said this before, but I want to say it again. Uh, we've seen the bottom in the earnings recession. So Axios did a thing, put this chart up. You could see the change in S&P 500 year over year earnings here. So basically, S&P 500 companies had shrinking profits in Q4 of 2022, Q1 of this year, Q2 of this year, and it looks like Q3 has put an end to that. Yeah, we did it. Yeah, plus 5.6% earnings growth in Q3 of this year versus Q3 of 2022. So we're, we had the earnings recession. We had three quarters of it. And I made this chart, so you'll hate it. Uh, next one. Don't be soft. So here's the 2022-2023 earnings recession as reflected in U.S. corporate profits, which are now $3.17 trillion. That's the top pain. The bottom pain is the S&P. So we paid for it. We, we corrected both in price but also through time. And that entire three-quarter profit shrink was accompanied by a market-wide correction. What else do you want? Do you see, you see it the way I'm saying it? We, we kind of front-ran it. And now we're back to that old price high. So I don't hate this chart. I love this chart. Uh, I was talking with Ben today on Animal Spirits. I think a lot of people sort of swept under the rug that we that were in a long bear market and had a really, really disgusting uh, crash in 2022. Yeah. Like Amazon and Google both went down more than 50%. I think did Netflix and Meta do 70%? Like it yeah. was it was disgusting. Yeah. And so some people of the big, just, some of the biggest companies in America lost half to two thirds of their market value. So all people at the like, same like, time. Like, oh, Meta's up 180% this year or whatever the number is. Yeah, it was down 70% last year. So uh, and then right. the other thing is this is this is the fifth longest streak since 1950 without new mm. highs in the S&P 500. The mm. fifth longest. Yeah. So, I mean, we had the earnings recession. The bears were right. And we had the price declines. The bears were right too. You just yeah. don't get to be right forever. Like things, things change. Things come to an end. Um, is there a story where you get another earnings recession in 24? Like a Maybe. believable story, I suppose. The consumer really f***s itself up. Yeah. That's a thing that definitely could happen. There's no evidence of it. There's li- and we're going to talk more about that uh, right now. Uh, you're up next. All right. So speaking of no evidence of a recession, uh, let's talk about uh, the holiday weekend and retail spending and all that sort of stuff. By the way, since when, is Odo- when, does, Ado- since when does Adobe report on this stuff? This is like everything was according to Adobe Analytics. Is that new? feels new. They're very involved in e-commerce, website design. So maybe this is like how they're doing their like info marketing shit is they're, they're reporting, they're doing analytics and you you know what I mean? Like that, that's plausible to me. So here's, here's what they said. I'm not mad at it. Online retail sales increased 5.5% year over year on Thanksgiving and 7.5% on Black Friday. And you might say, well, of course, because everything is more expensive and it's all inflated. Actually- Actually, driven by deep discounts in categories like electronics and generally lower online prices, which were down 6% year over year. 
So Cyber Monday will be the biggest online shopping day. Uh, let's throw up this. And it was, it was confirmed by uh, MasterCard and Salesforce and, and other sites. Um, it was confirmed by NVIDIA. It was confirmed by NVIDIA. <laughs> look, at, uh, look at this next chart. This, this is the Adobe chart. So Cyber Monday online sales hit new records on big discounts. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. So and that, that kind of shatters the inflation narrative. And then you saw, well. And then you saw the prices back to 2022 right. levels. You saw the TSA had the highest daily volume ever. People flying. Uh, the the air, airports had the, Record had the highest flying. foot traffic ever. Yeah. Record flying. Record oh, look, spending. You're getting, the you're getting the bubble. Record flying. Record spending. Do it. No, uh, but how do you get like the whole? And why doesn't mine do it? Boom. Ah, there you go. Boom. Fireworks. Uh, and these stocks are working. Shopify is up 110% year to date. Amazon's up 76. All it, Look, all of the data sources are corroborating this. MasterCard. like um, Anyone that's tracking the consumer is saying the same thing. So Josh, let me ask you this. People, people will not change their spending habits until they get laid off, until we have a recession. I mean, obviously, the the unknown unknown is like what causes what causes companies to start laying off their employees. All right. Well, the bear case is that people are now using credit so that they don't have to downshift their lifestyle, um, which I, I I would say is probably somewhat believable, but it's a huge, broad sweeping overgeneralization. And I think you, we have you adjust, a lot of but if you people. adjust, if you adjust for disposable income, it's not like off the charts at all. It's very normal. Yeah, and I think we have very wealthy people who in the last three years have gotten wealthier at a faster pace than ever in history. And just when the stock market started to suck, all of a sudden they had this bonanza with uh, yields on their cash. And it's almost like it's, it's almost like a movable feast. And every year they're making tons of money somewhere else. One year it's real estate. Their, their home prices can't stop going up. Uh, the next year it's it's cash. The year after that it's tech stocks. It's just like... Wealthy people and people at the top of the wealth and income distribution are going to keep doing what they're doing until, like, literally a nuclear bomb goes off. Um, and the the problem that you have if you're a bear and you want to make the case that the edges are fraying and that, you know, there's this rising delinquency, whatever, you don't have a, even a hiccup yet in the labor market. And it's all well and good. You could tell me labor market's a lagging indicator. It'll be the last place. To, all right. But you know what? Can you just wait till one person loses their job? Like one net person? We're still printing 200,000 jobs added every month on average. So that's why you're not seeing like the cracks appearing. It's just, it ain't going to happen until it happens. And it will, but I don't know when that is. And you really are, are missing out on a lot if that's the thing that you're waiting on. So hopefully most people aren't waiting on that. But well, guess what? Know, by the time you see the here. cracks, by the time you see the evidence that the economy is slowing down, what do you think is going to? What do you think will have already happened to stock prices? Well, we had an economic slowdown. I'm saying, and stock prices front ran that, and they front, front and they front ran the recovery. Right. Uh, I think there are people that just mentally have gotten themselves into a state where not only do they need stocks to fall, they need them to fall and never rise, like like stay down forever. I think there's yeah, let me like this mentality. Yeah, it's just yeah. not gonna. It's not gonna work that way. Uh, I wanted to take issue with the framing in this article. I don't like when they do this. But let me read you the uh, before we get into the charts or anything. Let me just read you this headline. 
This is Bloomberg, who should know better. And I know the reporter doesn't write her own headlines, so it's, it's not a diss. Um, billions wiped out as stock safety trade on Wall Street misfires. What would you think that article is about? And then I'll tell you what it's really about. Just seeing that, that headline. What would you think is going on there? Billions wiped out. Yeah. Like uh, people bought, buying like tail strategy, tail risk strategies. I just, people getting killed and like yeah. never. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Here's the lead. Reeling from a bear market last year, beaten up investors decided to spe- send more than $60 billion to ETFs focused on dividends. 11 months later, the trade is misfiring. Rather than give shelter in a stormy season, the largest dividend ETFs have been left behind by a tech-obsessed market whose biggest proxies have surged 15% or more. At the bottom of the leaderboard is the $18 billion iShares Select Dividend ETF, down 5.4% on a total return basis after all-in bets on utilities and financial stocks fizzle. There's just so much wrong with this. I, I don't even know where to start. All-in bets on utilities and financial stuff. They're, they're not bets. It's an index. There's nobody saying, hey, let's do an all-in bet on financials and utilities. That's what the index uh, is comprised of. Um, unless that's an active fund that I'm not aware. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Is it? No, Probably not, no, right? No, no. Okay. Uh, is it billions wiped out or is it stocks that just aren't up right now but could at some point go up? And then the billions return. Like, what's the right way to frame this? Kind of. I mean, technically, kinda. billions pr- were wiped out. I mean, I, I, I'm agree. I agree with you. That's wiped a ridiculous. Out, wiped, wiped out. Isn't that a lot? That's <laughs> a lot. Like, 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 uh, like never to be seen again. Is when I hear wiped out, like, like FTX shareholders were wiped out, right. or maybe not. In, in this wipe out, wipe out. It's strong. It's strong language. I agree. I don't like when they do that. Listen, it's one of the biggest. Uh, gaps between the performance and growth stocks versus value or dividend stocks of all time. The only one that even rivals it is the mania, uh, 1999-2000. Like that's the only thing that 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 outpaces it. Uh, 2020. Other than that, 2020. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. I think you're wrong. I think you're okay. wrong. Think about all the cruise lines and airlines and all those stocks rallied into the end of 2020. This. They did. No, they, yes, they did. They had huge recoveries. Casinos, hotel. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. This year, it's like pretty much all tech on the leaderboard and a lot of casualties elsewhere. But that doesn't mean wiped out. It just means- I agree. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, you're in the wrong sector this year. St- okay. St- strong language. Very strong language. Strong. All right, go ahead. Um, so Amazon now delivered more packages than FedEx, which it passed a while ago, um, and UPS. I'm, I'm and you about to. It's about to pass UPS. This is kind of incredible. Like they were showing us a, a, a statement from Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx like scoffing at the fact that like Amazon would never be able to get into that business and meaningfully compete with them. Yeah, I put, if, that, I put that here. If you were like an early Amazon shareholder or or bear whatever, like there's no way that you could have foreseen this. That but now Amazon they're like the biggest logistics day, company in the world, shipping company in the yeah, world. It's like incredible. That, 
Yeah, and they're not only shipping their own stuff, but that's now a, that's a huge business for them is third party logis- shipping and logistics fulfillment, and uh, that's one of the things that they're fighting an antitrust battle over. Uh, sellers on the platform basically saying, or lawyers for those sellers basically making the case that like you almost have to use Amazon if you're selling on their platform, you have to use them for shipping. I and like Ben Amazon- Thompson's case on this. Ben Thompson's like, they built the system. Like, why, why should why should they take the chance yeah, that you're gonna else. be able to sh- yeah, that you're gonna be able to ship it effectively and ruin their reputation? That well, that's what Amazon said. We we tried to leave it up to the sellers and they couldn't do it as well as we did, and these are our customers. So kiss my ass. Like if if you're selling on our platform, it's our job to make sure that the client gets their stuff. Uh, all right, what are the numbers here? This is, this is, put this chart up. Amazon is in blue. It is crossing over UPS. It is long since crossed above FedEx. This is in uh, parcel volumes. So we're talking about in the 5 billion parcel range, I guess, per year. This is on 5.3 billion uh, UPS shipped last year. And Amazon is now growing above that. That's insane. So, I mean, I see the vans all over my neighborhood. Shouldn't be that surprised. Did you know that Put this, next- uh, this, this news to me, FedEx is up 48% year to date? Um, yeah. I think it had a really tough year before, though. So did Amazon. So did Amazon. And Amazon's up 77. Uh, UPS. Let's- UPS is a, a shit stock this throw, year. Throw up the next chart, please, the revenue chart. So these, these are both... So we're looking at UPS and FedEx revenue quarterly. And these are both well, well off their highs. And I don't know if this is because Amazon is coming in there. um, But the journal said in recent years, UPS leaned into higher margin parcels from other customer segments, including healthcare and smaller businesses. Mike, I think it's it's pandemic related. Because if you you look at their revenue, 21.6 for FedEx and 21 for UPS, they are well above... 2020 prior to the pandemic, like the end of 2019, like that looks normal. What happened in 21 and 22 with everybody having to ship everything was like not going to be repeated. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So uh, I want to, I want to get into some really funny stuff though, from 2013 Bloomberg, uh, there were leaked documents from 2013 predicting this Bloomberg got a hold of these internal Amazon documents 10 years ago. The project internally was called Dragon Boat, and this is them. Said it's intended to launch a new business called Global Supply Chain by Amazon as soon as this year and would compete directly with companies like FedEx and UPS. The document describes Dragon Boat as a revolutionary system that will automate the entire international supply chain and eliminate much of the legacy waste associated with document handling and freight booking. All right, so that actually did end up happening. This is a 2016 Wall Street Journal article where they got competitors to weigh in on how serious Amazon was as a threat on shipping. Uh, Memphis-based FedEx says it's spending more than $5 billion annually on expansion and upgrades. I guess that was a lot of money back then. UPS says it shells out in excess of $2.5 billion. The two companies have managed to blanket the world with a total of 4,000 hubs and facilities. They operate... 200,000 vehicles and 1,000 planes. Quote, the level of global investment in facilities sorting aircraft, vehicles, and people to replicate the service we provide or our primary competitor provides is just daunting 
and frankly, in our view, unrealistic. That was the CFO of FedEx eight years ago. Well, guess what? Literally, it happened. But totally reasonable thing to say at the time. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I totally agree. Um, yeah, the UPS guy, chief commercial officer, said our network would be, quote, very difficult to match. Match? How about exceed? <laughs> but, it, but again, th- the, the idea that Amazon would be able to disrupt the two largest and I don't know if they're the oldest shipping companies in the United States seemed preposterous. Yeah. And they did it. They did it. Uh, Zerp helped, <laughs> but it, ha- it happened. Uh, and we're seeing this everywhere, tech versus everything else. We're seeing this in pharmaceuticals, seeing this in automakers. Um, big rising stock prices are enabling companies to replicate things that 10 years ago we would have thought were unreplicable, if that's, if that's a word. Uh, all right, we're going to do uh, his, his, my big takeaway. There's always a bigger lion in the jungle somewhere. And the other one, don't underestimate the potential for your biggest customer becoming your biggest competitor if the money that they'll save is meaningful enough. So Amazon was at one time, yeah, Amazon was FedEx and UPS's best customer, but there was too much money to be saved by competing with them rather than utilizing them solely. And uh, Jeff did it. And he wasn't very stealth about it. He, he bought himself thousands of airplanes and trucks and built them. And uh, here we are. It's a pretty, pretty amazing moment. Okay. Uh, you're going to make the case? What do you got? I am going to make the case that we, not just you, myself included, because I do buy individual stocks, we should be careful buying individual stocks. And what I'm about to talk about has nothing to do with the psychology of battling yourself, the difficulty of riding winners, the ease with which we just ride losers and hope for them to come back. Like put all of that to the side and just literally- Which are very about, real things, by the way. Which, which are, are very, very real. real. So hold that to yeah. the side. That's not even in the end of the equation for today. So this chart is showing the percentage of S&P 500 stocks outperforming the index. And this is year by year. And some years oh. it's higher than others. I don't know what the average is here, but most stocks do not. And this is just on a this is just on a yearly basis. The if average looks this, uh, 40, 48%-ish. That's the, okay. the percentage of stocks outperforming the S&P itself. If you, but if you were to extend this to two years, to three years, to five years, the number just goes lower and lower and lower. Um, I wanted to share two Wait, hold on. Of, hold on. Last year, 58% of S&P 500 stocks outperformed the index itself. And everybody was uh, so happy. Just kidding. Which was, yeah, everyone was miserable anyway, but that was pretty high. This year, only 24%. So that's a apocalypse for it's stock pickers. Horrible. That's bad, dude. Horrible. Uh, okay. This is a great chart, a really, really interesting chart from Morgan Stanley that Carl Quintanilla shared. Uh, I've never seen it put this way. What we're looking at here is S&P 500 companies- today. It's the years to spend their market cap on CapEx and R&D. Mm. And NVIDIA, uh, as much as they're spending, it's 131 years. Tesla, it's 69 years. Very nice. The S&P 500 on average is 49 years. Look what Tesla, we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Look what Tesla did to poor Ford and GM. 
GM and Ford spend their market cap in 1.9 and no, 2.6 years I'm sorry. respectively. I think you're reading this backwards. Tesla did not spend its market cap 69.4 times. What That's this what is I said. saying. Okay. That's what I said. Right, so maybe I don't understand it. Okay. So it would take it would take 69.4 years based on their current run rate for Tesla to spend its entire market cap, which is a sort of a oh, funky way. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Which okay, is a funky okay. way of thinking about it. But Ford and GM spend their market cap on R&D and CapEx in 1.9 and 2.6 years respectively. Yeah, it's crazy. This cannot continue. And this no, is what- it's unsustainable. This is, what, this is what Nicola said about the market saying that Ford and GM will not be in business in 10 years. Dude, people get so angry at that idea because it's like a big piece of their lives, like yeah. Ford and GM and like people are like really invested in these brands and their daddy had the pickup and it's like a whole thing. And they- they just don't want to contemplate a world where those companies basically become IP providers and somebody else is making and selling their stuff for them. Like, I, I'm not saying it's going to be like next year, but that what you just put up there, it's a pretty unsustainable situation. One more, th one more thing that I thought was super fascinating from, I think his name is Tom Reiner at, at Altimeter. He looks at public market run rate dilution and he broke it, he, he, he broke it down looking at big tech and software and internet stocks and non-tech. And um, he said it's wild to think that Lyft is diluting at 9% per year. The market capitalization of the business would need to double just to keep the stock price flat over an eight-year period. Why are they doing that? This is a uh, compensation it's equity for employees? Comp. It's, it's equity comp. So oh. next chart, please. So this breaks it down, looking at software stocks, internet yeah. stocks, versus large cap tech and non-cap tech. And even like face, he made the point that even Facebook, which is like got an air quote fit and uh, really right size its equity comp, is still diluting its investors to the tune of 2.8% a year. And this is, again, it's something that really, last chart, it's something that like when you're picking stocks and listen, this this definitely doesn't matter over the short term, like literally at all, but no. it really matters. Like over, if, you're, if you're buying and holding stocks, this actually matters. So he's got a chart that shows the five-year market cap growth to offset the, the dilution. And if you're diluting at just 3% just a year, which doesn't sound like a ton, that's a 16.16% market cap growth just to offset all the shares that you're issuing. So, so the again, te the, te the tech bulls would say, yeah, of course these companies are diluting at that rate. How do you think they're able to hire AI talent? The average AI worker is a, a $5 million salary uh, or a $5 million comp package. What do you think? That's like W2 income? Are you, like, are you kidding me? This is what we have to do in order for the company to survive. We're in, we're, so, we're in the software but Etsy, business. But, but, so PayPal is 0.9%, Etsy's 1.8%, uh, DoorDash is 4.7%, Snapchat is 7%. Like there are, yeah. I mean, that's crazy yeah. shit. And most of those companies you just listed are not growing their market cap. Right. <laughs> like they're just not, they're just and not. And so then you think about Apple, which is doing the exact opposite. All right, so- Just we, buying we back got, gobs so of stock. So we got to make the case from you and we got a couple of bonus charts. I love it. Uh, let's do a mystery chart and then we'll get out of here for the night. Uh, I feel pretty good about you getting this one. <laughs> I do. I do. Uh, all right. Let's throw up. I have two of these. It's the same company. I'm just showing you two different time frames. Let's do. What is this one? All right. This is the three year or the five year rather. Um, this has been quite a ride. This is one stock. It's not an index. It's nothing convoluted. Okay, looks this familiar, is uh, looks familiar. And I'm giving you prices too. Okay. So I'm like really okay. all right. 
Now give me the year to date. It's a really big story this year. Um, this is this is percentage gain and price. So there's a stock that's gone up. Uh, it 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 started the year at 30. It's in the 70s. It's 112 percent gain. And we sort of alluded to the sector earlier in tonight's show. You want to take a guess? That is a ridiculous, ridiculous looking chart. I mean, so we alluded to the sector. You gave me the price. Can you give me anything else? I can. I would like to tell you that the news about Black Friday sales hitting a record, very relevant to what's going uh, on with the price uh, of the uh, stock. Uh, okay, 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 I got you, I got you, I got you. Yeah, I got it. This is Shopify. boy, look at this. Do we have confetti for uh, young Michael? All right, round of applause. That's good, too. Chart off. Um, told you that I thought this would be a buy now, pay later Christmas. When you have uh, credit card rates pushing 30%, People who want to buy things for their loved ones aren't going to stop buying things. They're going to get smarter about how they pay for them. And that is what's powering some of the moves in a firm that we're seeing. Can I tell you something? I think, yeah, please. Two things. Number one, if you look at it, I'm looking at a, a, a chart of Shopify. Yeah, it's up 100 whatever percent year to date. This thing is a, this thing is a disgusting dog of a stock. If you just look at the, the stock chart. Not if you, you bought it in January, it's not. Exactly. But tell me when you would have bought this just looking at technicals. This thing is so gappy and all over the place and massive yeah. drawdowns. Just yeah. an impossible ride. But anyway, I did my first buy now, pay later transaction. Actually, that's not true. I did it. I, I, the Peloton I bought now and I paid over, whatever, 24 months. Uh, I don't know why I decided to do it today, but I, I said, you know, yeah, I'll pay it over six weeks. Why not? Um, no interest? It, turn, it turns out I am constantly using shop pay without even realizing it. Um, and I'm getting these alerts from them, like when things are being shipped, blah, blah, blah. And I click back on the link and it shows me like, I just bought 15 things this year using the Shopify pay feature, just because that was what was right in front of me on, on the, the website. So like shop pay, it, I don't know about like all the shipping and stuff. Like, I'm not going to get into that whole conversation right now, but like just the pay feature. So but isn't that what killed PayPal going on here? Like it used yeah. to be PayPal. Now Apple, it's everything. It's, it's it's Apple. It's Google. It's it's yeah, Amazon. It's, it's not everything. There's going to be like four or five, but uh, to a greater or lesser extent, they're disintermediating the credit cards that used to own the the online commerce business. And if more people decide to do buy now pay later versus carry a huge credit card balance, that is somewhat of an existential threat to some of the credit card issuers. So worth uh. Worth keeping an eye on what a firm is doing because it's not a it's not just hype. There's something going on there. Um, all right, and we'll end with that. Hey guys, did you know tomorrow is Wednesday, which means another all new edition of my favorite podcast, Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Check your podcast app. Make sure to listen. And then later this week, I don't want to I don't want to overstate this, but However, oh my god, Michael and I, we're not going to say who. Michael and I have a very, very, very special guest. We are so excited, and that'll come out on uh, Friday. Okay, thanks, everybody, for listening and watching. We appreciate all the likes. We appreciate all the comments in the chat. We'll see you soon. Whether you're just getting started as an investor or you're managing a multi-million dollar portfolio, Ridholtz Wealth Management has the solution for you. It all starts with building the right financial plan. To speak with a certified financial planner today, visit RitholtzWealth.com. 
Don't forget to check us out at youtube.com slash thecompoundrwm. Make sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcasting app. If you love investing podcasts, check out Michael and Ben every Wednesday morning on Animal Spirits. Thanks for listening. Ritholtz Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Ritholtz Wealth Management and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as and may not be used in connection with an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or hold an interest in any security or investment product. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Ritholtz Wealth Management unless a client service agreement is in place.